in the last year or two, we've started to see the elephants feel more comfortable and we can visualize that. It's amazing. Elephants are really, really smart. So they, they know where poachers are and they know where they feel safe. And we can tap into that when we watch collars moving across these maps. So we can actually see elephant behavior in a really novel way. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Sarah Powell from Esri and I'll be your host for today. You just heard wildlife crime investigator Naftali Honig from African Parks allude to one of the critical reasons for being vigilant in conservation. Elephants and other iconic African species require rigorous scientific observation to be saved from poaching and other human-caused threats. Here, Esri Director of Conservation Solutions, David Gadsden, investigate how conservation intelligence empowers the crime fighters of Garamba National Park. Naftali, thank you for being with me today. It's an honor to have a chance to chat about your work in conservation. Thanks so much for having me. So what is the mission of African Parks and why is your work needed in the conservation community? So African Parks covers a huge amount of ecological diversity and we're taking on responsibility to just make sure that that ecological diversity stays intact. In, in many cases, there are large enough spaces that it really covers multiple habitats. In Bazaruto in Mozambique, for instance, it's in an archipelago off the, the coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean. In Enedi, it's in the middle of the Sahara, this beautiful area with these, these giant arches. And on these rock arches, you have ancient rock arts. It's a World Heritage Site that's protecting not just wildlife, but also humanity's world heritage. So it's a, it's a huge diversity. And, and across the, the portfolio, there's there are probably thousands and thousands of species, probably millions, in ecologically very rich areas. Uh, in Garamba, we, we've, even just in the past couple of years, we've seen hundreds of species of birds and something like 71 mammal species. So that's just one park of Africa's biodiversity there, which is why it's so important to have an organization. We're not, we're not the exclusive organization by any means doing, doing good work in Africa in that sense, but to have an organization completely committed to Africa's biodiversity is very, very important. What got you started working on conservation topics in Africa? So I started in Africa traveling. Um, I came in as a backpacker when I was much younger and basically ultimately ended up in a park called Konkwati Duli National Park in the southwest of Republic of Congo. Um, I lived in there, I did a chimpanzee rehabilitation project and I lived for a year inside the, the rainforest there. And it didn't take very long for me to be completely convinced to stay in Africa and that that was my calling. So I got kind of pulled into more law enforcement oriented work, investigations and countering wildlife trafficking. So uh, that's, that's where it sort of headed. But my heart always stayed in protected areas effectively. I understand your work can be extremely dangerous. What are the trends involved regarding the risk to you and your colleagues doing this kind of protected area work in the regions that you're working in? It's very different everywhere. So in some parts of the continent, it's pretty benign. Where I am now in Garamba, things are a little bit more challenging. It's a corner of the world that's very far away from capital cities. It's very far away from any sort of central control. And uh, so it gets pretty anarchic in some of the areas adjacent to the park in Eastern Central African Republic and South Sudan. Yeah, some areas that just don't have government in the way that we, we are so accustomed to. Can, you can be walking down the road and you can get hijacked by people with, with guns um, that don't really have any sort of law enforcement authorities chasing them. It's a bit wild, wild west 
if we compare it to the states. So the idea is essentially to create an island of good governance and stability. We have public-private partnerships, really strong collaboration with local communities, with government, to basically manage the entire protected area complex. Because of that full responsibility, we are able to do things in the way that we know best how to manage the protected area. Effectively, generates jobs, it generates security, generates more health care, it generates more education. So it's just an overall positive influence on that area. And you can just see the instability decreasing in areas like Garamba, but now we've seen it recently in Chinko as well, in Eastern CAR, that um, even humanitarian organizations are reporting on it, saying, oh wow, this is really interesting. Protected areas can actually serve as these islands of stability. Does your work to create those islands of stability affect the populations of some of the iconic species we tend to think of in Africa? So some of the areas that we're talking about in these parts of the world, Eastern CAR, South Sudan, Northeastern DRC, they have been hammered when it comes to iconic species. The Northern white rhino is pretty much on the edge of extinction by the time African parks started working there. Maybe a few individuals kind of wandering around the area, but functionally extinct. Fortunately, that wasn't the case for elephants. Between Garamba, Chinko, and then all the way up into Chad, there's an enormous contiguous elephant habitat with basically no major urbanization or fencing or major road infrastructure or anything like that. So it's this enormous wilderness. It could even be more than 100,000 square kilometers of wilderness effectively. And the elephants have managed to find refuge in some small pockets of forest. The population is decent in Garamba, but we're actually seeing it re-emerge in Chinko for the first time, and they're coming out of the forests. Um, and there's been more observations in the last two years in Chinko than there were in the previous six or seven years. Um, in Garamba, we're now seeing a turnaround in the population where the carcass numbers have dramatically been reduced to effectively zero. We're not spotting them anymore. We're still flying, so we should be spotting them if they were there, but we're not. So essentially we have to now assess the viability of the population by evaluating the number of juveniles, things like the gestation period of elephants, and then creating a model off of that to understand how fast we'll be able to help this population rebound. When it comes to something like the rhino, which is extinct, that would have to be a reintroduction. But obviously in other parks, African parks has been able to do that in places where a species has gone locally extinct. So nothing is impossible. What are some of the strategies that African Parks uses when the stability of populations is too fragile because of fragmentation or, or isolation? Yeah, so we had our 500 elephants program and huge numbers of elephants were moved around in southern Africa and that was a major success for African Parks. And something on that scale would be much more challenging in very, very remote parts of the world where it takes a couple days to drive from a big city to the, the park or even longer in the case of Chinko. So yeah, those, those types of translocations are logistically challenging, but they can be done. Rhinos were reintroduced into Chad recently, and that's a very, very remote area as well. So those types of translocations, African Parks has a ton of experience with it, and they're very feasible. How does technology support your observations and the health of these huge areas? Garamba is almost 15,000 square kilometers. Um, we can't possibly manage an area that large unless we had some sort of strong geospatial awareness in a general sense, and that includes in a near real-time sense. So we have a classical GIS that conservation might be used to, like 
vegetation maps or boundaries, roads, rivers, all of that stuff. But then we also have overlays that are dealing with the near real time, whether that be fires from remote sensing sources or trackers, like little communication devices, for instance, with satellite transmission or even elephant collars. So the actually tracking wildlife itself has become a critical workflow that just integrates into how we use technology and how we use mapping. Regarding the use of technology, is it in a traditional sense oriented around research and monitoring, or do you deploy more of an operational framework to support your work in real time? It's absolutely both. We use it day to day, so we use it more frequently in an operational sense. Every single day we look at the elephants many, many times a day. As soon as those satellite collars send in a new position, we see it on the maps, but we can also analyze that data over longer periods of time. So we're looking at possibilities of how we can incorporate machine learning into understanding elephant movements more. I think that's a strong candidate for AI, but very much so operationally as well. Could you describe the concept of conservation intelligence and how it differs from, let's say, situational awareness? Right, so conservation intelligence, it's different from situational awareness in that situational awareness is what you see in front of you now and gives you a good idea of your assets or the animals that you're protecting in the now, whereas conservation intelligence takes that further and adds a deeper analytical aspect, which could be anything from instead of just viewing your elephants in near real time, what other data sources can you bring in to make your analysis more robust? A situational awareness platform is just points on a map, whereas conservation intelligence is bringing in as many data feeds as necessary to build out a very, very strong analysis. So when I got to Garamba, the best satellite imagery we had was like a six meter resolution image one-off. Otherwise you're looking at sort of imagery where you can't really control when the imagery is from. That was a few years ago and that's what we had. And that worked, but we can do so much more now. There are ways that we can get imagery that's higher resolution much more frequently, even potentially daily or weekly. Can you help us better understand the poaching crisis? I imagine it, at some level there are nearby communities that just need protein that have a traditional relationship with hunting in these natural areas. And then you have this extreme organized, organized crime activity going on that almost seems like a sort of commercial exploitation of these natural areas. Yeah, there's, it's exactly like you said, there's a, there's a huge gradient in terms of what poaching means. There is poaching that is just completely avarice, which is just destined to a market that is for greed, like ivory. And there's other poaching that's, that, that is more benign in a sense. I mean, inherently it's illegal. It is, yeah, it's an illegal exploitation of natural resources. So it's, it's a natural resource to manage. On the one end of the spectrum, it's about working together with communities and, and understanding what can be done as an alternative and what can be done sustainably. It's not, it's not that categorically one shouldn't fish or hunt, in fact, that can be a very important source of protein, as you mentioned. In a national park, that's sort of the, the, the central nucleus where there's no exploitation. But then in reserves that are peripheral to that, it might be a good idea. So, you know, we're very open to exploring options like that with local communities where it's, where it's a question of natural resource management. But then it becomes a very different issue when you're talking about rhino horn poaching or, elephant, or ivory poaching, for instance, in our area, elephants and hippos get poached for their ivory, and that's just not acceptable. So for that, we have a very, very hard stance, zero tolerance. Yeah, we, we, we even have a, a legal expert that follows up on cases in court to make sure 
that those cases go to justice. Has that level of protection and monitoring led to some positive conservation outcomes? Well, I think the most important conservation outcome is that our elephant carcass number has dramatically reduced. That's been beautiful to see. Um, elephant behavior is a more subtle one. So what we're seeing now is elephants, when they're, when they're really nervous, they condense into these massive, very tight herds with the collars on elephants. We can actually see it very, very clearly. And we can back that up with aerial surveillance so we can fly over it and see what's going on. In the last year or two, is we've started to see the elephants feel more comfortable and we can visualize that. So it's, it's amazing because we can, elephants are really, really smart. So they, they know where poachers are and they know where they feel safe. And we can tap into that when we watch collars moving across these maps. So we can actually see elephant behavior in a really novel way. And this expansion, you know, it might even be unique to Garamba um, because it's, you know, there are particular seasonal movements in Garamba. So for those of us who know Garamba and who have seen that compression in the past, and seeing elephants come together and, and now see them relaxing a little bit, it's really beautiful to see. Elephants are some of the most intelligent mammals. They are highly sentient. I've spoken with elephant researchers before who have spent decades watching these animals and you know, they'll, they'll even argue that they're just as smart or smarter than great apes. Um, I mean, they're very family-oriented, very social, and they, com they completely understand uh, loss. It's, it's well known that, that if elephants are under very severe poaching pressure, that, that affects a lot about them socially even, um, you know, how they, how they interact, how they reproduce. So, yeah, they're, they're just like humans in that sense. You've described a lot of the human geography that's affecting your conservation work in, in Garamba. What are some of the other factors that make this area challenging to work in? So one of the really interesting ones is um, pastoralism. There's a seasonal migration of cattle herders called transhumans, and they move from the Sahel latitudes to slightly south in the dry season in order to access grazing for their cows. You can actually see this on maps. You can see it with um, fire data from NASA, for instance. You can actually see this, this southbound movement when, the, dry season, when the, the grass starts burning, when the dry season starts kicking in people move down to latitudes that they previously did not move to. And so you have these sedentary populations and it creates a lot of tension between pastoralists and these sedentary populations. And also the pastoralists have a completely different culture when it comes to hunting. So somebody who is living in a particular area might have an awareness of managing that natural resource, um, as we were talking about earlier. Whereas if you're just sort of coming in and out of an area and you're nomadic and you're just moving from one area to another, you might pay less attention to what you're cutting down or shooting. So for example, there are places where the elephants have been completely poached out for ivory, where the other wildlife has been completely poached out for bushmeat, where even trees have been cut down in order to get honey or to just provide some extra forage for the, the livestock. So it can radically change an environment. Locals will tell us about uh, small rivers that are totally polluted or crops, their own crops that, that might be trampled. We talk to the pastoralists. We absolutely do not want a faceless enemy. We want to understand these people and understand what's pushing them further south. Is it just opportunity and just taking advantage of vacuums and governance? Or is it pressure from climate change? We have to fully understand it before we make decisions on this stuff. We have to work together with the communities that live around the park, and we have to protect the wildlife in the park. So that's sort of 
our baseline where we start off. And yeah, it's, it's made for some really interesting conversations in the middle of nowhere, yeah, in the middle of these, these wilderness areas where nobody lives. Um, yeah, you have this, this occasional presence of these nomadic peoples and their livestock. We talk to them and we try and mitigate all of the challenges that we're faced with. What keeps you motivated to always keep moving forward? I, I moved back to protected areas to, to live around wildlife, and I get that every day. I wake up and I can hear this really lively chorus of birds. When we have some free time, we can just walk around and there's wildlife right around us. We have hippos that walk up to our house every single day. Sometimes elephants walk by. You see something that you don't see every day, like a rowan antelope. And you think, you know, people who lived in Garamba in the 90s, they, they didn't even see rowan that much. They were kind of hiding out. You know, it's a species that's maybe not as iconic as the elephant, but it's rebounding right now and just seeing, seeing them more often. They're absolutely gorgeous. So it's amazing to see the revival of species, whether it's rowan or elephants. And it actually is, it's almost like the, the precursor to being able to look even into more detail into, into these landscapes and to see the whole ecosystem functioning again would be absolutely amazing. Um, I mean, you see these little details when you're in a place like Garamba, like, for example, vegetation has been changing over the last decades with the reduction of, in numbers of large herbivores like elephants and rhinos. So the ecosystem is not exactly where it needs to be. And that could take decades. And it might take more than my lifetime, but I don't have more than my lifetime. So I've got just enough time to try and pay attention to the details that, are, that show progress on the path to getting there. So yeah, we might be 100 years away from completely restoring this ecosystem. And that's actually why it's so important to have these strong mandates when it comes to managing protected areas, but we can observe progress along the way. And that's, that's just really incredible to see. Our audience includes leaders of many businesses around the world. What can businesses and business leaders do to contribute to your efforts at African Parks? So on the technology front, we have our challenges and we need to develop that um, with business leaders. We learn so much from other sectors and we're able to we're able to develop our technologies with support from business leaders. So that's definitely one of them. We are constantly constrained, so donations to African parks are always highly appreciated. Um, we're constantly resource constrained, and donations go directly to the parks. Naftali, thank you for being here today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to Naftali Honig for explaining how location technology assists anti-poaching efforts in Africa. To learn more about conservation in African parks, visit www.africanparks.org.